Hallelujah. Love that song. It's an old song that says, without him I can do nothing. You ever thought how you'd be without Jesus Christ? Wow. Without him. Thank you so much for the offering. Thank you for giving to the Lord. We appreciate that so much. You know, we've been in ministry for many, many years, and one of the exciting things is being able to give the missions, and I appreciate Dan Saldana and all that he does and all they give, and we increased considerably our giving this year to the mission field. As most of you know, we have ministries, whether it's in Nicaragua. By the way, there are 13 churches in Nicaragua, 13 churches. A man by the name of Emery Wine went down many years ago, well over 50 years ago, and started this ministry. And we've had the privilege to go down several times and just really see what God is doing. And throughout uh, the Nicaraguan area, the word of God has been spread and been taught, and it's just just a powerful way. And so we really appreciate all the, all your giving. And of course, as you know, we give money to uh, India, the southern part of India. We have churches throughout there by being able to give to a man by the name of Moses Chowdhury. And he has such a powerful ministry there. And so when you invest in giving into this church, you invest around the world. One of the things that I'm excited about is this past Tuesday at Durham Ministers in Prayer, we had two young men there. And they were there for the first time. And one of those men, young men, is reaching out. One of them is single, one's married. But they're reaching out to young people. They're going into the high schools. They're going into the colleges. And they're just ministering to a lot, a lot of young people. I believe that God's going to send a revival to our youth today. I really believe that. I talked to Randy Estelle this week, and he has 100 with him. As you know, Randy Estelle has been with us several times, and he ministers. He pastors a church in Florida. But Randy Estelle has a ministry where he trains young people in music. And this year, I think it's the largest group he've ever, he's ever had. He has 100 young men and women that is teaching music, teaching the Word of God. and So I just see a lot of good things happening uh, among the youth of our, our country. And, you know, you can look at all the negative things and say this is happening and this is happening. But there are a lot of young people in America that really and truly love God. And I thank God for that. Would you praise God for that? And then we're a part of a ministry with John Blake with CEF, Child Evangelism Fellowship. And John is able to get into the schools. And this is what's exciting to me. That the word of God, discreetly, yes, but the word of God is able to get into these schools. And John Blake is able, after our school hours, is to go into these schools and teach the word of God on our campuses and seeing what God is doing. And uh, they're being taught the word of God by the hundreds in this county, Durham and Orange County. And so am I excited about that? I'm very excited about it. Amen. Thank you for being with us this 
uh, special weekend holiday, and thank you for being here. Many of our folks are somewhere else, but we're glad that you came and part of what God is going to be doing today. I'm excited about our special guest. We do have a very, very special guest for us today, and uh, I'll be introducing him in just a moment, but he has a great ministry, and it is reaching out to a lot of hurting people. How many of you know there's a lot of hurting people today? Whether it's we wanting to help them to, uh, to, for, with food or places to stay or whatever. And it is a ministry called Meet Me at the Bridge. And Pastor David Smith, he and his wife Cheryl, they have just wonderful ministry. And what we'd like to do uh, is to be able to show you a little bit about what's going on with this ministry. And then we'll come and introduce him. So take just a moment and let's see what God is doing to help a lot of hurting people. Hi, this is David Smith, and I have a story to tell you. I shall never forget the day on a hot Thursday evening in August of 2010 when I first went to the inner city of Durham, North Carolina, with eyes peeled for somebody, anybody, who was hurting or struggling or in desperate need. There had been this unexplainable sense of urgency in my heart for weeks to go there and just make myself available to be God's hand extended to the forgotten people on the street. Well, that day I entered a world that was very different from the one to which I'd always been accustomed. And since that day, I have to tell you, I've never been the same. And somebody had told me then how much my life would change and what my day-to-day activities would look like going forward. I could not have received it. See, I'd been serving as senior pastor of a wonderful, successful church for 27 years. And my time was spent leading the church and preparing sermons and preaching both there and in conferences and meetings around the world, almost every state and more than 30 nations of the earth. It was an exciting time and I was just richly blessed with everything that God had done. But all that was about to change. The change was radical and sometimes difficult over the following weeks and months. There were many times that I thought, what am I doing here? How do I function in this strange new world that I have discovered? But today I can honestly tell you I'm very much at home among the poorest of the poor. And I cannot tell you the joy I experience day after day and week after week when I see the lives of hopeless people transformed by the power of God's grace. These people who are so far removed from the world I lived in are now my people. They're alcoholics, they're drug addicts, they're prostitutes, they're runaway boys and girls, they're displaced families, there are legal and illegal aliens, there the aged and the senile, there are the mentally ill, but they're my people. And I love them with everything that's in me. Some are temporarily homeless because of job loss or divorce, but for many, it's a chronic way of life, the end of which they cannot even conceive. They pick through the garbage cans for something they can use or something they can eat. They sit down to rest at a bus stop or in a train station until they're chased away. They sleep in shelters or in a nook or cranny they found in an alleyway. Some sleep in an encampment they have made with other homeless people where they put up their makeshift shelters or if they're fortunate enough, they have their own tent. 
more than once I've sat on the ground in the middle of the woods to break bread with them, to cry with them, to pray with them. I'll tell you, they're my people. One of the saddest aspects of this is the shelter kids. These children are dragged from shelter to shelter or from camp to camp, and if they attend school at all, it's sporadically. I don't know what it's like to be in a permanent dwelling place or to be a part of a loving community. They see themselves as permanent members of an underclass that defines and will always define them. It's a sad story. It's a bleak picture. But the good news is God is changing the lives of many of these people by the power of the gospel. Last week on the streets of Charlotte, I met hundreds of our street friends and we had the privilege to minister to them in many different ways and and talk with them and pray with them. And then a large crowd of them gathered for our outreach event on Saturday where we fed them a hot meal and gave them shoes and clothing and preached the gospel to them. Many came forward and prayed to receive Christ into their lives. And this is happening week after week in other cities. We comb the streets and alleys looking for those who are homeless or hurting and often hopeless. We try to meet their immediate needs as best we can. We talk with them, share with them, pray with them. And then we invite them to one of our weekly outreach events where we can give them a hot meal and try to meet their temporal needs with blankets, sleeping bags, clothes, shoes, and other life essentials. We minister to them through music and then bring a gospel message. We've seen hundreds of them come to Christ. Then we try to follow up. For example, on every Wednesday in Durham, North Carolina, in the middle of town in a park, we have a Bible study for those who have come to Christ. And also at times we give an invitation there and see them come to Christ. We started out on the first Wednesday there with 13 new believers. And now we, we meet with 70 or 80, sometimes uh, 100 there in the middle of town at noon on Wednesdays. You know, somehow I think if Jesus were here on the earth in his physical form today... He would be spending much of his time with the poor, the wayward, and the disenfranchised. He, he did while he was here. I have every reason to believe that he would hang out with these people today. That's why I'm here. And that's why your prayers and your support are so very, very important. We've reached the place now all the expenses involved, buying the food and buying the fuel and moving the equipment from place to place that... Um, it's difficult. It's very difficult. In fact, we're at the point that we'll, we'll either have to catch up or cut back. And, and frankly, I can't stand the thought of cutting back. We want to continue to reach further and touch the lives of more and more people for Christ. So I'm asking for your prayers today. I'm asking also that you visit our website, meetmeatthebridge.com. And just have a look there and pray about ways that you can pitch in and help to make a dramatic difference in the lives of these people. A difference that will not just be long-lasting, but that will be eternal because many of them will come to know Christ and they'll be in heaven because of the efforts that you have put forth. So check out our website, meetmeatthebridge.com and see how you can help. Or feel free to give me a call, area code 919-210-8504. That's 210-8504. I'd love to talk with you about ways that you can help either by volunteering if you're in one of the cities that we're ministering in or by helping with the expense of carrying on this ministry.
at the end of the service, I'd like for David and Cheryl to stand at the back, and maybe you'd like to be able to contribute to their ministry and let them know that you love them and appreciate the effort and all the hard work that they do. David Smith has pastored uh, several churches in North Carolina. He's pastored some of the most thriving, uh, larger churches in, in, in the U.S. He's traveled all over America to preach the gospel from one end of the spectrum to the other, and he's preached it well. In fact, he's a preacher's preacher. I'm glad to have him with us today. Would you make him welcome, David Smith? Thank you, Pastor Don. It's great to see you in God's house this morning. Wonderful praise and worship, a wonderful presence of God in this place. And it's a, it's a great, great privilege to share worship with you today. And I have to tell you that I, uh, some of my fondest memories uh, in life over the, mass, over the last <clears throat> years <laughs> have been made uh, in this church. Uh, even before you uh, made your home at this beautiful facility, uh, going all the way back in my memory uh, to the airport road, way down, way down. And, and uh, my, my dad used to come there to uh, preach for his friend, Pastor Zeb Holder, uh, often, and I would come with him uh, when I was just a little boy. Uh, remembering a Pastor Zeb Holder as, as one of the strongest and most passionate men that I had ever known. Uh, some of you remember him, and, and, and you know of which I speak. He had a voice like thunder. He, he was like E.F. Hutton. When he spoke, everybody listened, right? You could, not, you, could, you could not ignore him. And he's a powerful, passionate man of God that, that touched the lives of many. And I, I see a few around here. Uh, whose lives were touched by his ministry. And then, um, and then along came Pastor Don and just to fill some big, big shoes. And I will tell you that he, he has filled them well. Um, amen. That's for sure. I, uh, re really, one of the early sermons that I preached were at Bethel. Um, some of the early church, early church. In fact, we were ordained at Bethel, right? And uh, so many memories. You know, as I as I came into the service this morning and uh, and looked at this beautiful place and felt the wonderful presence of God here, my mind was just uh, flooded with great memories, but also filled with thanksgiving for this wonderful ministry that God has raised up. It has been so solid through the years and has touched the lives of thousands and thousands of people. And uh, thank God for Bethel Christian Center. I feel so, so much at home here. And, and in a real sense, I, I am home here. And, and thank you so much for, for making me feel that way. Um, now, that being said, I, I have a confession to make. The Bible says an honest confession is good for the soul. Sometimes it's not good for the reputation, but it's good for the soul. But I have a confession to make, and, and, and that confession is to you, Pastor Don. I've, um, I've been talking about you behind your back. I know. 
um, and I've doing, been doing it for a long time, and uh, I'm not going to stop. But the things that you say behind somebody's back, you ought to have the courage to say to their face, right? And so uh, I've said things behind your back that uh, I have to say to your face today. I've said this many times that Pastor Don Westbrook is one of the most deeply committed and pure-hearted servants of God that I know. I'm not saying that as one who just met him yesterday. Uh, I've known Pastor Don for a long time, longer than either of us even want to talk about. I've known him for a long time, and I've known him well. Uh, I've seen him go through wonderful, wonderful times in his life, and I've seen him face some difficult days in his life, and he's always the same. He's solid as a rock. And I just, I thank God for him today and all the, all the things that God has done in his life and through his life. And, um, and the, the story has not been written because God continues to speak this, through this wonderful man of God. And uh, I just cannot tell you, my wife knows this. I, I say it all the time in the presence of other people. I don't know of anybody that I have no more love and regard and respect for than Pastor Don Westbrook. And I am so thankful and so honored, Pastor Don, to call you my friend. And more than my friend, my brother. And God bless you. Thanks for the opportunity to stand here today and... Uh, and break the bread of life. Now, I've been thinking and preparing for days now for the message that God would have me bring this morning, and I've already kind of rehearsed the sermon with my wife. She didn't think it was all that good. <laughs> I'm kidding about that that part. But... Um, but my heart and my mind and my spirit really is turned in a different direction. And I want to just bring you a very simple message this morning, but, but I, I'm bringing it with a, with a full conviction that this message will not be in vain. Somebody needs to hear this. And really, it is centered in one verse in the Bible, and that is in the, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13 and verse 44. If you want to take time to turn to that verse, it's fine, and, uh, and I'll give you time to turn to it. But while you're turning to that verse, I want to ask you just a very simple question, a very important question. What is your greatest desire in life? Of all the things that you would desire, of all the things that you may ask God for, hoping for an answer, what would that, that one desire be that a survey was made uh, a few years ago with over uh, 1,700 people. And uh, they asked that question of these people, and they got these answers. The number one answer was to be rich. Does that surprise you? Probably not in this materialistic world. To be rich, and they were not talking about real riches. They're talking about material riches monetary riches. A close second was to be happy. 
To be, that's not surprising either. Everybody wants to be happy. How many would rather be happy than to be down to the dumps and sad? Everybody wants to be happy. So the number two answer was to be happy. And actually, many people think those two things are one and the same. To be rich is to be happy. And of course, many, many rich people can tell you uh, Cheryl read to me yesterday uh, the, uh, the testimony of Steve Jobs, one of the richest men in the world, multi-billionaire, but he said that seldom in his life had he ever been happy. He had no peace, no joy, no sense of satisfaction. And the number three answer was to be with somebody I love. There's nothing wrong with that, right? You'd rather be with somebody you love than somebody you hate, right? Somebody to be with somebody I love, and that 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 really is the wish and desire of thousands and thousands of people in the world. So, what about you? What is your greatest desire in all the world? And if I could take that a step further, have you ever found something in life? You have set yourself on something in life that you wanted more than anything else in the world. A thing about which you would say, if I could only have that one thing, I think I could never want for anything else. That one thing would fulfill me, would make me happy, and give me reason for living. That one thing that you would say, whatever it takes, I must have this one thing. Thing. Well, Jesus talked about such a man in Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that a man discovered hidden in a field. And in his excitement, he hid it again. And he went and sold everything he had to purchase that field. Did he really want that field? No, actually, he wanted something that was, was hidden in that field. What do you read? This one verse is the only place in the Bible this man is mentioned. In fact, we don't even know if he was a real man. We don't even know his name. But this, this man actually illustrates a very, very important principle. So what could one verse tell us about this man? A lot. What could it tell us about uh, his search, uh, uh, the, the object of his search, what he was willing to do to get that thing that he wanted, and the end of his search? Well, three things that I want to just spell out to you today. Three things he had. First of all, he had a deep sense of dissatisfaction with what he had. He had a lot, but he, he wanted something else, and he was deeply dissatisfied about the thing that he did not have. Now, when we think about dissatisfaction, we see it as a negative thing. If somebody just can't be satisfied, uh, we find fault with him, and we say, why can't you just be satisfied? Why do you always have to have something else? And we might be justified in saying that. But when you think about it, almost every achievement, every invention, every advancement in life has been, has been realized because somebody was dissatisfied with something. 
Almost everybody is dissatisfied with something in life. Thomas Edison was dissatisfied with having to read the books by candlelight, and therefore, therefore we have the electric light. Gutenberg was dissatisfied with everybody having to find the nearest church where the Bibles were chained to the pulpits. And therefore we had the, the printing press. And the printing press was, was, was invented primarily to print the scripture, the word of God. How many knew that? Amen. Alexander was tired of Mrs. Bell fussing at him for... Not calling when he was late from work. I'm, I'm making up a little bit of that. But for some reason, he was dissatisfied. And therefore, we have yeah, 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 the telephone. The list could go on and on and on. Almost everything in life, almost every invention, every achievement, every accomplishment came about because somebody was dissatisfied about something. Somebody wanted something to be changed. You don't, you don't change things, things in your personal life until you get dissatisfied with the way things are. For example, you don't get a better job until you get dissatisfied with your current job. Something about it. The hours, the working conditions, the people you have to work with. There's something about it. You're, dis, you're dissatisfied until you change. You, you don't improve your physical health and, until you get dissatisfied with something about your present physical health and the state of it. Either, either you're big or you're too little or you don't feel good. You get sick and tired of feeling sick and tired. And then, and then you get dissatisfied enough that you change that. You don't change things in your family until you get tired of things the way they are. Maybe there's not enough Good communication there. Maybe there's not enough peace in the house. Maybe, uh, maybe somebody's always mad at somebody else. And then, then sooner or later, you get tired of things going the way they are in your family. And you want to change it. Now, guys, it is the same with your spiritual life. Things will be the same with you until you decide... I'm not satisfied with the current state of affairs in my life, spiritually speaking. You have to say to yourself, the life that I'm living is not the life that I want to live. God has more for me than this. No matter what I tell myself, life, my spiritual life is not satisfying to me. Something has to change. And I'm the, I'm the only one that can change it, and I can't change it without the Lord's help. And so therefore, I'm going to set my heart to seek after God. I'm going to seek God for something more in my spiritual life. So the, 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 the treasure hunter in this story had a deep dissatisfaction with the way things were and the things that he did not have. The question is, what about you? Are you satisfied today with where you are in your spiritual life? Here's the second thing he had. He had a, he had a passionate desire to have the treasure that he had not been to, uh, able to acquire up to this point. In fact, the Bible says that he discovered a treasure in the field. And notice this, in his excitement... In his excitement, he was excited with desire. His desire was not just, just, just some languid, passive, half-hearted 
preference to have a certain thing. No, he was excited with desire. Have you ever been excited with desire? And in his excitement, in his excitement, he went and decided to do something about it. Now, is it wrong to desire what you don't have? Think about that. Desire for a good thing is a good thing, right? Say that with me. Desire for a good thing is a good thing within itself. There's no premium on, on, on uh, contentment uh, and, um, and complacency and say, I've got all I need of God. I need a little dab will do me. And I'm going to be satisfied with that. No, this man was excited with his desire. He was so excited with his desire to have the treasure that was in the field. He decided that he would not rest until he found it. And great people in the Bible, people who found satisfaction in God, people in God used in great ways were those who were not satisfied with where they were. I, I thought this morning about a, a psalm in the Bible, Psalm 42, as, as, as David, was, David was in the wilderness and he was being pursued by his enemies and, uh, and he was fearing for his life. It was hot and dry and, and, and no doubt his tongue was parched in his mouth with thirst and what's he thinking about? What's he thinking about? And if you're thinking he's thinking about a drink of natural water, well, think again. That's not what's on his mind. Something is, is above that. Something is beyond that. Because when you begin to read the psalm, he says, as the deer pants for the water brooks, even so, Lord, my soul pants for you. How long has it been since your soul panted for God? Have you ever had that deep a desire, that, that strong, that, in, that, that intense desire for God that you feel, felt not only I, I, I prefer God, I, I desire God, but I crave God. I've got to have him. I've got to know him in my life in a way that I've never known him before. The Apostle Paul had that kind of desire. He wrote to his friends at, at Philippi and he talked about the deepest, strongest desire of his life. And he said, I, I, I once thought that all these things were so very important. What were these, those things? Did he have uh, notoriety? Absolutely. Everybody knew Paul. Did he have education? He was the most educated man perhaps in his day. Did he, have, did he have fame? Absolutely. He was famous. Did he, have, uh, did he have physical wealth? Some believe that Paul was a wealthy man. There's an indication in the book of Acts that he stayed in Rome. He was a prisoner in the house that he himself owned. So he probably has had some, some physical material needs. So what, what, what did he have? Did he have a great heritage? Yeah, yeah, he could boast in his heritage. He, was a, he had a pedigree, a spiritual pedigree. Did he have great ability? Tremendous ability, amazing intellect. He had so many things that this goes on and on and on. And he said, I used to think that all of these things in my life, 
tangible and intangible. All these things that I had and held in my life were, were so very important. But he said, I've come to the point that I consider all these things nothing. All of these things nothing for the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. In comparison to that, everything else is worthless. In compared to the, the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, I have discarded everything and counted it but garbage. Or the King James says, dung. Compared to the knowledge of Christ, Everything else to me is absolutely worthless. Everything else is garbage. Everything else is refuse. And I would give, I, I will gladly give up everything else if I can only know Christ. Now, now, now obviously, he's not just talking about knowing Christ in the experience of the new birth. He's not just talking about having encountered him and, and come to know him in a, in, a, in a religious sense. He's not talking about an intellectual knowledge of Christ. He's not talking about just, just knowing some facts about God. He's not just talking about being able to, to write a resume for God or being able to talk about some of the deeds of God, but he's talking about knowing God in a personal, deep, profound, experiential, life-transformational way. He, 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 he has captured your heart. He has become the, the absolute center of your attention and your affection. And knowing Him has become more his, your, your consuming desire than anything else. If you have to give up everything else in order to know Jesus Christ, you're willing to do it. Now listen, listen, folks, uh, th this, this is not some, some neophyte. He's not a new concert, uh, convert. Th th this is Paul we're talking about here. He's met Jesus on the road to Damascus. He's gone, gone to the desert of Arabia to just, for what, three and a half years, to, to just be with God and get to know God. He's traveled all over Greece and Asia Minor and, and different parts of the world and all the, all the way to Spain and, and, and to Rome. He has preached the gospel in every major city in the Roman Empire. He's been thrown into prison again and again. He has been beaten more times than he can count for the sake of the gospel. He has seen angels and seen visions and fallen into trances and established churches and, um, and written epistles. I mean, he's a spiritual giant. And yet, he says, the most important thing in my life is to know Jesus. And obviously, he's talking about knowing Jesus Christ in a way that he had never come to know him before. And the question is today, what is your most passionate desire? What is the thing that drives your life every day? If you didn't say a word, would it be obvious to everybody around you what, what the driving guide of your life really is? Paul said, this means more to me than anything else. Everything else, everything else pales in comparison. 
I would give up everything. It, it, it goes on. I'm not going to take time to read the following verses, but boy, are they powerful. He said, I, I want to become one with him. I want to become one with him. I, I no longer count on what I can do, but that I have standing with God through his grace. It's nothing that I have done because he said, I'm the worst sinner of all. But I want to know Christ, he said. I want to know him. I want to experience him in the mighty power that raised him up from the dead. And he even said, I want to suffer with him. Uh, how many people do you know that pray, God, bring it on. I want to suffer. But he said, I want to share with him in his suffering. So that I will, I will experience. I want to suffer with him even sharing in his death so that I can experience the resurrection from the dead. That's the treasure I desire, he said. More than anything else, Paul said, I want to say, I hope every one of us can say, the treasure in my life above everything else, the thing that I would give everything else in order to have, is a life lost in Christ and fully devoted to him. I'm not talking about this as one who has arrived there or who has achieved that as though it were something to be achieved. I'm talking to you today as a fellow brother. I want this more than anything else in the whole world. And God has been taking me through a process in the last few years in order to bring me closer and closer to that point. I, um, I was in a prayer meeting on a Saturday night a, a few years ago at, at Abundant Life. We would meet every, every night and just lift up the services uh, on, on the following day on Sunday to the Lord, and, and we would pray and intercede, and, and God's presence was there in a really, really powerful way. I'll never forget the night, though, that a man named Leroy walked up to me, and Leroy purported himself to be kind of a prophetic type, and I, maybe, maybe he was, I don't know. But uh, Leroy came and said to me, Words that were common in those days. It was kind of in vogue. And, and uh, whether he was parroting what he had heard other people say. Or whether it was really a word from the Lord. He said, he said, God is going to take you to a new level. Remember a few years ago, everybody was saying that. God is taking you to a new level. And my attitude was, yeah, okay. Okay, Leroy. Good for it. Good for you, man. Go for it. And then I turned and walked away from Leroy, and then God spoke to me. Not in an audible voice, but, but you know, God spoke to me in such a way that it couldn't have been clearer had it been in an audible voice. I knew that God was talking to me. And here's what God said to me. I am going to take you to a new level. And it's a lower level. I was 
puzzled, almost bewildered by what God said to me. But then when I thought more about it, I realized that it had already begun. Because there were struggles going on in, 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 in me, in my circumstances, and in my life that were absolutely painful. Things that I did not want to go through. And when God says, I'm going to take you to a lower level, you don't know what's coming. But you better be ready for it. So, I made several trips up to the mountains of, uh, of North Carolina and Virginia. I spent hours walking on mountain trails and just crying out to God, saying, God, what in the world is happening in my life? God, what are you doing in me? It feels like chaos. And yet, deep down inside, beyond all the fear and trepidation and uncertainty, I knew that God was doing something in my life. So I cried and, and I did everything I knew to do to hear from God. In fact, one day, one day I said, God, I'm not leaving this mountain until you talk to me and tell me what's going on in my life. Uh, did God tell me? No. Well, you say, if you're determined, no. God will tell you when he gets ready to tell you. Right. I did everything I knew to do. I, I, I raised my hands and shouted praise to God. I, I fell on my face and groveled in the dirt. I did everything I knew to do. God, talk to me. God, show me what you're doing in my life. And in one of those days, in one of those days, there was a prayer that came up out of my spirit that, that was totally unrehearsed. And I prayed, God, give me what I need. And only what I need to fulfill your purpose in my life. And take from me anything that would be a distraction from that purpose. That is the most dangerous prayer I've ever prayed in my life. And that'll be the most dangerous prayer you ever pray. And in reality, I, I, I realized as I prayed the prayer, it was already underway. There was so much upheaval and so much disturbance in many aspects of my life. Pain that I did not know existed. But I prayed, God... Give me what I need to fulfill your purpose and take from me anything that would distract me from that purpose. And this was the most unsettling time in my whole life. The days that followed brought such pain and such loss into my life. I lost things that I did not want to do without I, I lost relationships that were dear to me that I thought would last forever. I lost friends that I thought would be there through thick and thin. At, at least they had always said they would. I lost position and prestige that meant more to me than I even was willing to admit at the time. 
I, I lost relationships that I, that I, I learned had I had depended upon for my validation and, and almost my, to define who I was. And little by little by little, it began to slip away until, until God reminded me. I prayed that prayer several months before, almost a year before. And I prayed it over and over and over almost every day until God said, do you really mean that? And I told God that I am willing to lose everything in order to find everything I need in you. I, um, I lost my health, at least temporarily. I'd been disgustingly healthy through the years, never been sick a day in my life. And then I was hit with a, with a stroke that almost completely wiped out my vision. And I was trying to get back on my feet from that, and I had a second stroke a little over a month later in, my, in the speech area of my brain that made it difficult for me to talk. And as though that weren't enough, the third stroke came. All of this happened within, what, honey, three months or a little over three months. The third stroke left me totally unable to speak. I still walk with a limp, so to speak, because I, I've, I don't know if you can notice it or not, but sometimes I have a difficult time getting my words out. But you just don't know where God has brought me from, right? And then, and then aphasia. Some of you, if, if you've ever had a stroke in, this, in, the, in the speech area of your brain, it, there's something called aphasia that's, that makes you very difficult. The, your cognitive uh, properties are there. You have your thoughts and values and memories and all of that, but you have no ability to associate your, your cognitive thoughts with words or language. And it's a very, very confusing thing. I couldn't have told you my name. Uh, I, couldn't, I didn't know my ABCs or my numbers, even if I could have articulated and I couldn't speak a word. There's a man that came to my hospital room when I was at the worst time that I'd seen in my life. And he stood over my bed and prayed. both in English and in tongues, he prayed over me. And then he sang a song. Cheryl and I will never forget it. We've talked about that dozens, if not hundreds of times. He sang a song over me. And Pastor Don Westbrook sang in the spirit over me. And the presence of God filled that room. Was I instantly healed? No, I, I went to speech therapy and occupational therapy and all kinds of therapy week after week after week trying to get words or phrases out of my mouth. But I knew that God was in control. Whatever it takes. What, you say, wait a minute, I, I know I'm messing a little bit with our theology, 
Pentecostal full gospel. We understand that. Understand that, that. That it's always God's will to heal everybody right now, whether or why. I understand that. I was raised in that. I grew up in that. Until I've come to understand that God does what he wants to do when he wants to do it. For his glory and for his honor and for our good. If you had a beautiful, if you have a, if you had a beautiful bird, I mean a beautiful, expensive bird that meant more to you than anything else in the whole world, but the the bird kept flying away, and you knew that if he flew far enough, he would fly to his demise. And the only way you could keep him from flying away into danger was to break his wing. I'm just saying, how many think you'd do that? I'm just saying, God's ways are not our ways. And his thoughts are not our thoughts. And God is the boss, and we're not. Now, there's a body of teaching going around today that you can command God and tell God what to do, and, and, and you're a little God, and, and you're on the throne, and God has to listen to you. No, no, God doesn't have to listen to you in terms of ordering him around and telling him what to do. We have to listen to God. And if God has to break our wing... Right? If God has to do, do, do whatever needs to be done in our lives. I was, I was preaching. Um, I'm trying to, to bring this to, um, to a conclusion in a few minutes. I was preaching a, a crusade in, uh, in Namibia. That's in southwest Africa. And I'd been there several times and had done some pastor's conferences there and, met, and, and knew quite a few pastors there. And they asked that we would... Uh, we would do a crusade there, and, and we did two or three. But on this particular occasion, we did a crusade in what was called the world's largest shanty town. It was the, it was a, a, the town of Akahana, right outside of Windhoek. And uh, it was a, a town of tens of thousands of people and, and no decent houses in the whole, the whole town. They lived in pasteboard boxes and uh, what looked like converted dumpsters and just tin shacks. And it was the, the, the most, unless it would be in Haiti or, or, or some parts of India, I'd never seen such poverty as that. And we got, we got a big tent and put it up on top of the hill overlooking the town of Akahana. And, and hardly anybody had towns, uh, had cars in, in that town. And so they walked and they streamed by the hundreds, actually by the thousands, up the hill to hear the gospel. And many, many of them came to Christ. And <clears throat> we stayed there until well after midnight praying with the people. <clears throat> But one night, one night in particular comes to my memory. Our driver was driving us to the, to, uh, to the tent site, and I said, could you just drive us up and down some of these alleys? Very few paved streets, but just dirt ruts. 
just drive us around so that we can pray over the people. And we were just praying. And here, here, here's what I was praying. I was sitting in the front seat and two of the guys in the back and the drive over here. I was praying, oh, God, how you love these people. God, how you love these people. It's the only words that would come out of my mouth. And the tears were just flowing to, to my shirt was wet. God, how you love these people. God, how you love these people. And then God spoke to my heart and said, I do love these people. But no more than I love the people in your town. And I said, yes, yes, God, I, I, I love them too. And then God said, no, you don't. You don't want to hear God say that to you. No, you don't. At least you don't love them like I love them. And I said, God, I will from this day forward. I will. So we, we finished up the meeting in, in Namibia and came back and started doing community outreaches. Um, Linda, I bet you were part of some of those community outreaches uh, around the poorest areas of, of, of uh, Hillsborough and, and, uh, and Durham. And we built a... Um, we built a food pantry. Um, Joel was very much involved in that. A three or four thousand foot square foot food pantry, and uh, we got food in there. And we we had four lines of, uh, of 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 some of the poorest of the poor, and we'd give them bags of food. And of course, I would work the food lines and go down one line after another ministering to the people and praying with them and it's, it's just loving them, inviting them to church. And did they come to church? Very few of them came to church, but then a few of them started coming into our church. But it was uncomfortable because they, don't, they didn't know how to behave in a nice, pretty church. I mean, some of those kids that actually scratched their names on the pews and God forbid that the holy house of God is desecrated in such a way as that. No, no, I, I believe in respecting the house of God. Well, really, this is the sheep shed. This is where God's people gather. And I be, believe in respecting it. And God likes nice churches. If you don't believe it, uh, read the, the Chronicles, right? Solomon built a pretty nice church. So there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that at all. But when we worship facilities more than we have compassion on the people, we miss the mark. So they didn't know how to behave. Some of the saddest words I, I've ever heard were standing before the service uh, one morning, one Sunday morning, and I heard a conversation between a couple of ladies, and one cut her eyes towards some of the deplorables. And she said, we don't need that kind of people in our church. And I turned and said to her that it's so grieves me. I hope I never hear those words again. These are people for whom Christ died and people whom God loves. So, so was there some tension over that? Yes, there was some tension over that. Was there, were there problems? We would rather love them at a distance We'd rather go out there and minister to them where they are. And then if they want to go to church, let them find churches of their 
kind. Broke my heart. Broke my heart. And so the burden continued on and on and on. And then I had a dream. I had a dream one night. I'm not, I'm not one who dreams very much. I, I go to bed to sleep, not to dream. But I had a dream. And I dreamed that I was preaching, not in a beautiful facility like, like ours in Hillsborough or yours here or many, many others that I've preached in across the country or, or, or some other venue, but I was preaching under a bridge with a ragtag bunch of guys that I didn't even know how to identify with. Old broken down chairs and raggedy people. But I was preaching the gospel and talking to them about God's love. Well, it touched me, and I, but I didn't know what it meant. I dreamed the dream a second time. And then a third time. I'd never had a recurring dream in my life. <clears throat> so I, I got up on a Thursday morning to have breakfast with a, with a, with a brother. And, uh, and I told him about the dream. And he had this just this... Uh, wonderful revelation. He said, you ought to go find the bridge. Duh, okay. Why don't I do that? So I drove to Durham and I thought I knew where the bridge was. It was right across from the American Tobacco Company and uh, adjacent to the uh, Durham Bulls, Bulls uh, ballpark. So I pulled into the bridge that day and I just wept and cried. I, I, I couldn't control myself. And I said, God, and what are you doing? What are you saying to me? I don't know what this is about. So I got out of the car and walked over across the street to the Durham Bulls office. And, uh, and I met the guy that he said, uh, they said was in charge. I, I met the manager and, uh, and he said, uh, what can I do for you? And I said, well, I, I believe that... <laughs> I believe that, uh, you know, the bridge right across the street, I believe that God wants me to, um, uh, to feed some homeless people up there and, and tell them God loves them. And he looked at me like he'd seen a ghost. Uh, he said, I can't help you there. I said, well, I, I want permission to go into the bridge. He said, we don't own that bridge. I said, who owns it? Uh, well, it's owned by DOT. The state owns it. And I said, oh, okay, so that means I own it, right? Because I'm, I'm a citizen of this state, so I own it. But then what am I going to do? So I, I, I walk out of the office, and I went up Blackwell Street, going up the hill, across the tracks, and stopped at Main Street just looking for somebody who looked like they might be homeless or at least in trouble. And I made it to the corner of, of, of Blackwell and... Um, Black will become something else when it goes across the track. But Main Street. So I see a guy sitting on the, a park bench there. He's a big guy, a big African-American guy. At least I thought he was African-American until he opened his mouth. And he spoke with a very distinctive British accent. And I introduced myself to him, and he told me that his name was Simon Peter. Simon Peter. I said, well, where did you get that name? He said, I don't know. 
And it was obvious by talking to him, he very, knew very little about his namesake because he didn't know much about the Bible, much about church at all. He, uh, he had been in the music uh, industry in, in, uh, in the UK and uh, was very, uh, very much familiar with Eastern mysticism and Hare Krishna, and, uh, which is a branch of Hinduism, and that was very, very popular in those days, but very little about Jesus Christ. And so I told him the story of Jesus. And I said, he met a man by the side of the sea named Simon Peter. And I said, he looked right through him and saw not only what he was, but what he could be. And Jesus died to change his life. And his life turned completely around. And he became the primary spokesman for the early church in the book of Acts. And I said, Simon Peter, God will do that for you. And I said, would you allow me to pray with you? And I, I, I'll never forget, he answered me one simple word, and that word was, absolutely. Now that's easy. Absolutely. I prayed with him, and he confessed Jesus that day. That was on late on Thursday afternoon. And that was so good, I went down Main Street, and the next man I met, his name was James. James. Not the James in the Bible, I can promise you, because he just got out of prison the day before, and he talked to me about how hard it was to get a new start when you've been in prison and you got a mark on your name. And I said, James, God can give you a brand new start. And I shared the message of the gospel with him and prayed with him, and he confessed Christ. And then I met John. <laughs> then I met John. John had a bizarre story, uh, absolute bizarre. I don't have time to tell it to you today, but John had been in the ministry up in Pennsylvania, and because he was, he was betrayed by his pastor and mentor, he fell away from God, went back to his um, vocation as a chemist, and there was an explosion in the, uh, in the, in the photo lab and he was burned over 90% of his body. And, and, and John today is very disfigured from his injury. Well, they didn't come exactly in that order, but I met, I met Thomas. Thomas they call the can man. They call him the can man because he would not panhandle. He was not going to ask people for anything, <clears throat> but Thomas goes up and down the streets and he picks up aluminum cans and he puts them in these, these huge plastic bags and it's amazing how much he can carry. You know, aluminum cans are not very heavy and you see, you see Thomas walking along with a bundle of cans that are five times bigger than he is and he goes down to the recycling center and he trades them in sells them by weight for a few pennies to feed himself. But I walk up on Thomas, and, uh, and he, he, act, he acted like a, a scared cat. He said, I didn't do nothing. That's the words out of his mouth. I didn't do nothing. I said, no, no, I, I understand. I just want to talk to you. No, 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 I'm, I'm all right. I didn't do nothing. I said, can I talk to you for just a minute? And I said, yeah. I said, Thomas, I want to tell you that God loves you. 
And Jesus died to give you a brand new life. He said, are you some kind of a preacher or something? <laughs> he blew my cover. I said, well, actually, yes, I am Thomas. And he said, he said my brother-in-law is some kind of a jackleg preacher, I think. I said, well, what's a jackleg preacher? He said, you know, he just don't, don't have no church, but he just preaches wherever they let him preach. I said, well, I guess maybe, maybe Jesus was kind of a jackleg preacher too. And I said, and Jesus was a homeless man. And then his eyes got wide and he said, what? Jesus was a homeless man. I said, yes, he was. He said, foxes have Holes and birds of the air have their nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to call home. He said, I thought he made the world. I said, he did. He said, then why did we be homeless? I said, because, Thomas, he became homeless because he wanted to get close to people just like you. Because he loves you and he values you and he sees promise in you. I prayed with Thomas that day. I never met Judas. Thank God I never met Judas. <laughs> I did meet Nathaniel. Nathaniel was a, was a small, very black man from a Kentucky. Northville, Kentucky, and he wound up in Durham on the streets, and he'd been living on the streets for, I think, over 10 years, maybe somewhere between 10 and 20 years. And what he lacked in size, he made up in bravado. I mean, he was rash and vulgar and profane. He, he seemed like he was mad at everybody. And I looked at Nathaniel that day, and I loved him. I didn't even know him, but I loved him, and I prayed, God, if you could see fit to make me friends with this man, I sure would like that. And so I kept speaking to Nathaniel, and I asked Nathaniel if he'd walk with me up the street one day, and he did. He walked with me, and uh, I said, Nathaniel, God wants to do something wonderful in this city. He wants to lead a lot of people to himself, and you're going to be right in the middle of it. I didn't even know what I was saying. I said, you're going to be right in the middle of it. He said, I am. Yes, you are. He said, is that something like a viable meeting? That was the way he said it. You got to know he has a different pronunciation for things. The, the VA is the V8. And it's, and, and it's Duke anniversary. I mean, I don't know. He's got his own glossary, right? Is it something like a Bible meeting? And I said, well, yeah, I think so. He said, uh, <clears throat> somebody came through Northfield, Kentucky years ago, and, they, and they, they rented the schoolhouse, and we set up chairs, and people came from everywhere to hear him preach. And he said, people all over those parts got religion. And I said, God's going to do something like that among the poor in Durham, North Carolina. You're going to be a part of it. 
And um, I think Cheryl is next to me. Cheryl's, she has, he's one of her favorite person. He's so humble and so sweet, loves God, helps us in the ministry all the time. Helps with setting up the equipment and walks the street and passes out invitations and tells people about Jesus. And he went with, uh, I, I was preaching in the camp meeting down in Dunn, Pastor Dunn, and, and, and Nathaniel went with me there and gave, it, gave it, his testimony in Dunn. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. So the stories go on and on and on. We, we, we went to the bridge and started preaching the gospel, and we have seen hundreds of people give their lives to the Lord. Lives restored, lives renewed, families put back together. Uh, have we seen some disappointing circumstances? Absolutely. But we've seen enough victories to make up for all of our disappointments. A, a number of people, I don't even know how many, but, but it's in the dozens that we have had the privilege to minister to on the streets of Durham have, have already died. Because life on the street, as you may know, is, is tough, and life expectancy is shorter. You may meet a homeless person on the street and you, you think he's 60 or 70 years old when he's really probably 50 or 40 years old because it takes its toll on them. And so we've lost some guys through death, but they made their peace with God. And one thing I'm looking forward to when I get to heaven is meeting some of the people that I've met on the street in Durham and Raleigh and Charlotte and other places and having them say, thank you for preaching the gospel. I'm here today because of my faith in Christ. I, I got to finish the sermon, right? I just wandered aside. It won't take me a minute. The third thing he had, what did he have first of all? Somebody help me with this. I lost my place. What did he have first of all? He had dissatisfaction, a fundamental dissatisfaction. There was something missing in his life. The second thing he had, he had a passionate desire for what he had. Dissatisfaction, desire. The third thing he had was a total non-negotiable determination to have the treasure upon which he has set his heart. So strong, so strong was his desire to have the treasure that not having it was absolutely not an option. Now listen, that's an important thing to understand today. When you set your heart on a treasure, and you're so determined to find and possess the treasure. So much so that not having it is not an option. That's when we're getting somewhere. Are you with me? So in his excitement, he went and sold everything he owned. How much did he sell? Everything he owned. Yeah in order to get enough money to buy the field, but not just the field. The field was secondary. He was determined 
to have the treasure that was in the field. What was he willing to give up to have the treasure? Absolutely everything. In all probability, he had found other treasures, but to him, in his eyes, this was the greatest. And he was going to have this treasure no matter what it cost him. What is the treasure in your life? Are you thinking, man, I, I know I, I need to be a better Christian. I, I need to draw closer to God. But you know, man, there's so much going on in my life. I know it be, would be great to be spiritual and devoted to Christ. I, I, I know that, but boy, I have so many other things that I want to do, so many other things that I want to accomplish. It's got to be a treasure you are not willing to do without. And the treasure is the fullness of the knowledge of God and his will in your life. <clears throat> Whatever it takes, and God knows what it takes, to bring you to the point of saying, everything I am, everything I have, everything I've done or ever hoped to do, I am willing to lay it down. I'm willing to give it up in order to have the treasure. Let's stand together and thank you for bearing with me. I probably have gone just a minute or two over time. That's right, we don't use time, right, around here. There's no such thing as overtime. The time belongs to the Lord, right? I don't know, if, if, if God is speaking to your heart today, if there's something you need to transact with God, or you just know that there's a, there's a deeper degree of <clears throat> consecration, commitment to Christ that you need to make, I, w I would welcome you to come. <clears throat> and let's just pray together as we come to the close of the service. You say, do I have to give up everything? Everything. Everything. You say, that's, that, that, that's radical. No, I'll tell you what's radical. Jesus gave his life. God gave his son. Heaven surrendered its most priceless treasure. That's what radical. And how can, how can we do less than give our everything to God? Do you want to do that today? Let's come. Let's just come. Let's just come. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> Judy, there's an old song. <clears throat> you may know it. Somewhere in the key of uh, A or F or there's a voice calling me from an old rugged tree and it whispers draw closer to me leave this world far behind there are new heights to climb and in me
a new place to find and whatever it takes to draw closer to you Lord that's what I'll be willing to do and whatever it takes for my will to break Lord that's what I'll be willing to do take my houses and take my lands take my dreams and my plans I'm placing my whole life in your hands and if you call me today to a land far away then I'll obey and your will I obey sing it and whatever it takes to draw closer to you Lord that's what I'll be willing to do and whatever it takes to more like you that's what I'll be willing to do there's another verse that, that used to be in the song if you look it up on, on, on the web it's probably not going to be there anymore and I understand why because many many years ago I sang that song and I would get to this verse and it would it would just almost choke in, in my throat because I'm saying God is this just the song that I'm singing are these just lyrics that I'm mouthing meaninglessly or, or can I sing this sincerely from my heart and I said, God, I'll never sing it again unless I can know that I'm singing it from my heart. I don't have it in front of me today, but I, I think uh, God will help me remember it. It some, goes something like this. Take the dearest thing to me If it's how it must be to draw me closer to you, Lord. Let the disappointments come, lonely days without the sun. 
if through sorrow more like you I'll become and whatever it takes to draw closer to you Lord that's what I'll be willing to do and whatever it takes for my will to break that's what I'll be willing to do. I'll trade sunshine for rain and comfort for pain. That's what I'll be willing to And whatever it takes for my will to break, Lord, that's what I'll be willing to do. Lord, help us today. If we're not singing that song with sincerity, if we don't really mean it, help us to mean it. Give us grace to mean it. Help us to set our heart upon you, Lord, making you our chosen desire, esteeming love for you above everything else in this whole world. And the coming to fruition in our lives, everything that you have ordained for us, everything you've planned for us, God, let us make that the goal, not one among many goals, but the goal of our life. I pray that everything else would fall to a far lesser position. Have your way in us, God. Have your way in us. We want, we want to belong to you fully. That's our prayer. That's our desire. That's our treasure. And having that treasure, not having that treasure is not an option. We're going all the way with you, God. Thank you. Thank you for this time. In Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Don. Thank you so much. God bless you.